Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's program, Bart and Jenna discuss the 60s films of Agnes Varda. Is your Varda? Really? Uh, I'm bringing someone who would like to meet you. Uh, it's Agnes Varda. Agnes. Yes. Agnes. Is she the daughter of Eugène? Je ne sais pas. All right, here we are back with another Cinema 60 episode talking about somebody who recently died. It's Agnes Varda this week. And by the time this airs, it'll probably be, you know, a couple months after she she actually passed away that that you'll be hearing this. But that's okay. She she deserves an episode whether she uh, had recently passed away or not. Yeah, we scheduled this when she was alive for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the 60s is when she was at her peak and got the most attention. She was a key member of the French New Wave. She wasn't part of the, the Cahiers de Cinema group, but she was one of the left bankers with Alan René and Chris Marker and those guys. And she was actually the first person associated with the French New Wave to actually have filmed a feature-length movie, uh, La Pointe Cour, in 1956. Which is pretty interesting. It's uh, It was edited by Alan René, and it's just about this couple that is having some relationship problems, and they go back to Philippe Noiré is in it, and they go back to his the village where they grew up, and so it cuts back and forth between the couple's relationship and then things that are happening in this fishing village. So it's sort of half semi-documentary, half angsty, Bergman-esque, Antonioni-esque, art film, uh, but apparently she hadn't seen either of those directors when she made this movie. She was not much of a cineast. She she came from a, a fine arts background and was a still photographer and decided, hey, I'd like to make a movie. And that's what she did. Yeah, there's an interview from 2000 where she talks about how she was the first to make a, a new wave film, mostly because she, you know, had no intimidation about it because she didn't know that much about film. <laughs> So she was totally cool with just jumping into it and creating something because she, you know, hadn't seen that many films uh, at all. She didn't. She grew up not going to the movie theater. She says, I was 26 year old and I didn't even know that there was a Cinematheque in Paris. And yeah, in, the, in that way, this sort of ignorance was was an advantage to her. The Cinematheque in Paris was uh, was the repertory theater where all the movie obsessed people were, would spend the day there watching all the great movies that needed to be seen by anybody who's interested in movies. And uh, that's where the Kaye guys all saw all the, these the Hollywood, the Howard Hawks and Sam Fuller movies and, and all this stuff. So so she didn't have you know all these movie references to draw on. That was, was sort of a big part of what the French New Wave is. I think later on, you know, when she was making, even in the 60s, a lot of her films start to include more and more references to other films. So I think she very quickly got involved in the in the cinema culture of Paris. I mean, I guess she had to if she wanted to hang out with these guys. Well, she was married to another filmmaker, too. I mean, if, if Jack Demi didn't <laughs> force her to see some of these movies. Yeah, so... She made, uh, you know, quite a, quite a few short films after she made La Pointe Cour. Uh, I think mostly documentaries or semi-documentaries. As we'll see in the movies that we discuss, it's, uh, it's 
often hard to categorize what, what she's doing with her films exactly, and they all seem to fall in this uh, this strange sort of fiction-slash-non-fiction category, and that's I think that's one of the most interesting things about her body of work. But yeah, so she made several short films and finally made another feature in uh, 1962, Cleo from 5 to 7. Comme une île déserte que recouvre la mer, mes plages se dévident sans toi, sans toi. It's notable because it's shot in real time, or sort of shot in real time. So it's an hour and a half film that's covering a two-hour period in Cleo's life. She's a, a pop singer who is waiting to find out what the results of a biopsy she just had are. And so it's killing time for two hours uh, in Paris, waiting for these results. I don't know, what do you think of Cleo from 5 to 7? Well, this is, this is her most famous film, right, in, in a lot of ways? I would say so, yeah. This was actually the first time that I had seen this movie, <laughs> which I know is is embarrassing to admit, but um, I actually, I just, it was one of these films that I had heard about for so long, and I kept thinking, I'm going to watch it, I'm going to watch it, <laughs> and uh, I just, I just never did, and uh, so it was interesting to finally see it, because I, I had all of these expectations as to what this movie was going to be like, knowing a lot about it and having heard, you know, oh, it's a masterpiece, basically, you know, this is just one of those those movies that all cinephiles must see and gets brought up a lot in general. And, you know, Varda, too, was also this sort of she was considered the grandmother of New Wave, right, which is kind of a shitty title, considering she was the same age as all of them. And then, of course, gets, you know, ignored when people talk about New Wave half the time. But yeah, so my expectations actually had a lot to do with just New Wave cinema, and I didn't actually, I mean, there's a lot of comedy in New Wave, but this one I, I didn't expect because this is about a woman who is waiting on test results. She's waiting to see if she's uh, dying or not from a this sort of mysterious, right? They don't They don't really say exactly what she has. I think they say cancer. Oh, that's right. She thinks it's cancer, but there's no specific symptoms. But she thinks she has cancer and she's waiting to hear back on test results. And so I expected this to be depressing and, uh, <laughs> you know, very serious film. And in fact, it's the complete opposite. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I'd be curious to hear about what you think is that I didn't think anything of this was serious whatsoever. And in fact, I didn't even think that she was dying. I thought that her cancer was made up. I thought that that she's I mean, she's spending two hours trying to distract herself. So, I, I you know, she's having... Her songwriters come over to her apartment, and she, uh, I don't think they even know that she's worried about uh, these test results, and they're just, you know, a couple of goofy guys. One of them is actually Michelle Legrand, the the composer, and they just have sort of a, a slapstick routine that they do for her, and, but then that ends with her kind of bursting into song. It's, this movie's not a musical, but she is a pop singer, and at the end of the scene of her rehearsing with her songwriters, it goes into the song is sans toi and it's a, it's this sad beautiful song and it you know sort of the sets disappear and she it looks like she's on a sound stage performing the song and it's it's very emotional so i think i think the idea of the movie is that you know as much as she's trying to distract herself you know and not think about 
this impending doom, this, you know, her, you know, mortality, it keeps kind of bursting through and, and, you know, she keeps falling into these melancholy moments, but then she'll recover and there'll be another adventure in, in Paris with, uh, you know, she gets a ride with a, with a female cabbie and, and there's a conversation about what that's like. And she, you know, goes and visits her friend who's modeling nude for some sculptors. And I think that's kind of, the idea of why it goes back and forth like that. The lightness of the movie is the are the distractions, how she's trying to distract herself, but then it keeps coming back to this looming death, I guess. To be honest, I didn't necessarily feel that looming death either. I sort of understood that as what Varda was trying to do. I guess I didn't care enough about Cleo. Damn, ice cold. Well, here's the thing. I kind of thought that, that Varda might have been undercutting her a lot. I mean, like in the beginning, her maid... Angèle. Angel, uh, you know, she goes for a tarot reading as the opening scene, and she gets the death card, which in tarot, and the and the and the woman even tells her, does not mean literal death, but you know, she's just inconsolable <laughs> because every card she gets keeps spelling out just you know it's worse and worse in her mind, and then you know she goes to a cafe and she bursts out crying, and Angel kind of dismisses her completely. Uh, you know, and all these guys come around, they're like, oh, poor little lady, what are you crying about kind of stuff? And, you know, she gets, she snaps out of it pretty quick and then goes into her apartment that's covered in small kittens and, you know, angel wings. And, you know, she, she seems like a dramatic person. And I thought that was a little bit part of it. And then all these distractions and, and no one seems to take her seriously when she says that she's sick and that she's waiting on these test results. Like no one in the whole film takes her seriously <laughs> until she goes to that park and then she meets a, a, a random guy. But then suddenly she doesn't seem to care too much about her test results. You know, she makes him come with her to the um, hospital to get them. She she was a little nervous, but I felt that once she had had this guy with her, once she found this sort of love connection, suddenly she wasn't so worried about her test result is what it came across to me like. Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's also this sort of idea that it's easier to confide in a stranger than to confide in the people that that's true. You know, supposedly care about you most. Like her her lover comes to visit her in her apartment, and she's you know debating whether to tell him or not about the illness, and she doesn't end up telling him. And 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 there's there's also the Algerian war that's looming over this whole movie. You know, there are news reports on the radio when they're in the the taxi cab and the guy that she meets in the park this uh, Antoine is a soldier who is on leave or you know on back from the war briefly but then has to go leave for Algeria uh, again in, in a couple of days so that's part of why I, I think she's able to open up to him and also to sort of forget about her own like personal tragedies when she's thinking about you know all of these young men that are senselessly dying in this war that that shouldn't be and that's where the movie actually gets effective and affecting i actually start to care about her and i like antoine he's an engaging performer which i think is part of the problem with the rest of the movie is is that none of the actors in it are particularly engaging until you get to this guy at the end and he's telling her his story and, and you know all the things that are happening in Algeria yeah I mean part of me feels like maybe I'm just being a jerk <laughs> <laughs> and in a lot of ways like the, the stuff that was very interesting 
whether or not I believed it was serious was that, you know, you do have this portrait of a very pretty woman who's a pop singer and the type of person that gets dismissed. And she's here. She is really worried about something. And then she has all of these mostly men, but also even women telling her like, oh, whatever, like you don't know what you're talking about kind of stuff. And that I thought, you know, finally, now you have a, a movie where you're taking this type of person seriously, I think is nice. Unfortunately, I didn't totally buy it either. But uh, it wasn't because she was pretty. It was just because I didn't buy it. So there is at least this sort of care. And this is something that we're, we see in all of these Varda movies that we watched, that there was this care and uh, an attention paid towards uh, the female perspective, which I really appreciated. I mean, also the fact I love the stuff that I really liked in this movie, too. It's funny uh, of because we watch all of these movies that she did throughout the 60s and from the shorts to, to all of her features. And the stuff I really loved in this was all of the taxicab footage. It's very new wave, but getting that sort of documentary style stuff in there is, is what was really fascinating about this to me and, and looked great. And there's a couple of just great, I mean, like the art class with the nude model was also just shot really well. It was just fairly atmospheric. And she does a, a really great job, too, of like even showing an, a naked woman and having it feel like it's an art class and not sexualized. Yeah, there is this constant kind of push and pull between fiction and nonfiction, Barda's stuff. And I think her her inclination is to always go more documentary. Like when Cleo is um, goes into the cafe and plays one of her songs on the jukebox to see how people respond to it, and you know they basically ignore it. But just watching the various people at the tables at the cafe and just all the background, all the people just populating Paris in 1962 is is fascinating to see. And I think the movie is most interesting as a, just a document of the of the city at this time. Definitely. Though she does show some talent for purely constructive narrative when uh, when Cleo goes to the movies to drop off a film to her old friend's boyfriend, uh, and they watch the short film, which, which is actually a, a five-minute short that Varda had made previous to, to Cleo from 5 to 7, called Les Fiances du Pont MacDonald, the, the fiancés of the MacDonald Bridge. And it's just this silent movie-style short comedy starring... Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina and Jean-Claude Brielli and Eddie Constantine and all of these people who show up in all of these new wave films. And it's just a, a really funny little short, silent style comedy. And, uh, you know, I think it stands up well on its own and it it does sort of serve its purpose in the movie to as, as a sort of comic distraction for Cleo. So she's not thinking of, about her possible uh, demise but it's also the the film itself involves death to a certain <laughs> to a certain degree. It's uh, I I think it's mostly just Varda goofing on the on the fact that Jean Luc Godard is always wearing these dark glasses, and that uh, and that's why he's he's got such a cynical, pessimistic attitude. <laughs> uh, he's he says he says goodbye to his fiancee, played by Anna Karina, and he puts on his dark glasses, and then all of a sudden he watches her leaving, and she. Uh, you know, trips on a hose and dies, and a and then she gets carried away in a in a hearse, and but then he realizes that it's just the dark glasses, and when he takes them off, you're, you know, she's she's fine, and and, and every, everything is okay. I read an interview with her where apparently she said that she got him to take the glasses off by telling him he has really nice eyes, and also she shot the whole thing. It's in like silent film style because she said he just talks too damn much. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, it's funny actually watching that that short in Cleo from five to seven here. I, I actually did not. I was like, that guy looks a lot like Godard. It did not even occur to me that it was him. And I completely no. didn't recognize Anna Karina. I, the only person that I recognized was Jean-Claude Brialli, who has like a f- literally five second cameo as like one of the Hearst drivers. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I watched the short, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I know all these people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after Cleo from five to seven, she uh, she made a couple more shorts, at least a couple more that I was able to get access to. She made quite a few short films and, and only you know a certain number of them have been made available in America with you know English subtitles and uh, and whatnot so in 1963 she made a short called salut les Cuban meaning hello Cubans I guess just a slideshow of her trip to Cuba from a couple of years before. She just, it's mostly still photographs that she narrates over with uh, Michelle Piccoli. What, what did you make of this short? I really like this, actually. I mean, as far as what she did, because the whole thing is still photographs. It's like thousands of photographs that she animates. And when she is focusing on people of Cuba, I love it. It's really great. There's this great animation with this uh, musician, Benny Moore, where she has him essentially dancing to his own music through photographs. That was wonderful. When she talks about the sort of who's who of artists and poets and musicians and even filmmakers in Cuba, I really enjoy that stuff. And then the other half of it is, of course, very politically minded, where she's sort of talking about, you know, the the revolution. And that was interesting. I mean, like, it was cool to see. I enjoyed it, but I can't help but think, like, eh, this is, like, a little bit infantile. <laughs> you know, like, it, it just wasn't enough. There was not really much of a critical eye at it. It was just more like presenting, like, here is all of the things that I was told directly by Fidel Castro, you know? Like, it, there's no moments of... of you know, this is said, but this is what I saw. It's just like, this is what I was told kind of stuff, which, which is interesting and and is important uh, too, as a document of, you know, what people were told and what, especially how sympathetic foreigners saw what was happening. But I, it kind of left me wanting a little more as far as the political side of it. Yeah. I mean, she did set it up as like, this is what I saw and heard and felt in Cuba. So there's no negative side to the Castro and Che and the revolution at all, but she's also sort of giving it to us from the Cuban perspective. So, you know, if she were to have her own take on the situation, it might have seemed a little out of place. Yeah, I don't blame um, her. You know, it's like it for like for what it is, it, I think it, it's interesting and fine. I, there is a good line where they say that Fidel Castro is the Gary Cooper of the West. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was kind of, there's a lot of comparing to movies in this, actually. So I guess she finally saw some movies at this point. But um, it was funny, that line about Gary Cooper reminded me, actually, of uh, Phil Oakes as a, you know, 60s folk singer, protest singer, who I love. And there he has a great line about how, if there's any hope for America, it lies in a revolution. If, if there's any hope for revolution in America, it lies in getting Elvis Presley to become Che Guevara. Which I think is, like, is still true today, basically. 
you know, swap out some yeah. names, but to see what, what is, um, you know, being said about Fidel Castro, it's like, yes, he, you have to be this sort of rock star. And then later on, uh, you know, she, when she did Far From Vietnam, uh, or at least was one of the contributors, when you actually hear Fidel Castro uh, talking in that one, you could, it's very obvious, you know, like, oh, yeah, like, <laughs> of course, this guy's the leader. Like, listen, like, listen to how he talks, you know. I wasn't all that fond of some of the artistic choices she made in the in the short. Like you pointed out that scene where the dancer, the singer is dancing and, and you know, she shows a sequence of photographs to make it look like he's dancing, but then it just gets so repetitive and it's sort of a something that Varda brings back from movie to movie. She'll sometimes, you know, show you know, somebody walking up to a door several times and there's you just see this this repeated motion and I understand that she's kinda of, drawing our attention to the the filmmaking process itself but i get a little impatient with with some of those touches that's fair and you know she does that again in uh, elsa la rose the 1965 short film that we watched yeah this this one was was sort of weird partially because i actually don't really know that much about anyone involved unfortunately basically it's a, about this woman elsa older woman who was a Russian-French writer in her own right, and uh, her marriage to uh, Louis Aragon, who is a French surrealist poet, I believe. But I'm not very familiar with his work whatsoever. I think that I, I know that he's popular <laughs> or was popular. And unfortunately, I don't know anything about her either. You know, I, of course, this documentary tells you some stuff about her life. But really, this it's, it's a documentary about their marriage. Right. I actually enjoyed going into it not knowing anything about either one of them because it just seemed like this older gentleman talking about his wife who he's been married to for 50 years or something and it's slowly coming out, uh, you know, that, oh, these, these people are actually, besides having a, this this wonderful long relationship and it's fun to watch them, uh, you know, recreate their meeting at this bar and, and uh, you know, just to discuss their lives together, you, you slowly realize, oh, these two have some pretty major accomplishments behind them. They're pretty well known. I thought that gave it a uh, an interesting trajectory that someone who already knows something about these people might not have had. Yeah, I mean, like, this this was pretty easy in some ways to dismiss as, like, a, a kind of charming and, and silly love letter from Varda, really, to both of them. But... I also kind of thought that she was talking about, and this is what, what I thought was most intriguing about it, is that it felt like it was also this sort of study on the relationship of the creative to their muse. Basically how you can overshadow the, the muse as a real live human being for their image and, and for how you feel about them. There's like a point where they're reenacting something where, you know, she says, oh, can I interrupt you? And he says, not at this moment, please. And, and she says, you would never have done that so politely <laughs> without the camera there. It's like he spends all day writing poetry about her, but he doesn't have the same respect, you know, and, and that's what he's doing when he says not right this moment. It's like here he is writing this love poem <laughs> about Elsa. And then the real life Elsa comes into the room and says, hey, can, can we do something? No, 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 I don't have time. You know, so it's like kind of interesting to see her status as a muse sort of overshadowing her as a, as a human <laughs> sometime, which she, was, she seems pretty annoyed about a little bit. Uh, you know, not obviously not enough to ruin their marriage, but. It, it, that's another thing that kind of gives some structure to this short is that, um, you know, she's presented as just this ideal. Like you, you, you see her solely through his eyes for you know the first half of the short 
and then she's sort of introduced and you get to see her as a human being as as the movie goes on and i, I think that that yeah it's exactly what you're saying that there's always a a real life human being behind these uh, muses that uh, may not always get acknowledged but i i like varda's portrait documentaries i i think they're pretty charming and enjoyable and uh they speak to where Varda is coming from, and they they feel just warm and pleasant, and you get the filmmaker's personality, you know, as well as these portraits of the of these of this long married couple, which she seems to tackle in her next film, but in a, a much darker way. Yeah, le bonheur, happiness. Nineteen sixty-five was Varda's feature-length follow-up to Clear from Five to Seven. It's about a happily married couple, Francois and Therese, with two beautiful children who love to go out in the woods and have picnics and and just live in the moment and enjoy their lives. And Francois meets uh, Emily at the post office and decides to have an affair with her. Not because he's unhappy in his marriage, just, you know, decides, you know, I would like to sleep with this woman, so uh, so I will. I will say that I, I think that it helps to tell people that there is a big crazy twist. Only because otherwise, I think that, and, and when this movie came out, I think Varda got in trouble with uh, feminists. <laughs> thinking uh screw you what what the heck kind of stupid ass movie is this that you're putting out here but the truth is that this movie and and definitely and you can tell throughout the film not i mean even if i had gone in blind i i actually i think i would have been pretty angry about this movie until halfway through and then when you start to see uh you know if nothing else like the the music starts to change the music gets darker which i thought like you know i i kept waiting and and being like i really want like a clue i want like a really clear clue other than knowing that in interviews that she said that this you know her point of view uh, on the matter but but yes it's definitely a sarcastic film in in many ways and I think that's important to mention just because this movie, it's its so pop candy color. This is like another one of these films that looks like the dream of 1960. Everything is just like beautiful chartreuse and, and red orange and, and blues and, and uh, flowers and, you know, brilliant greens and all of these, these wonderful colors, uh, you know, and, and floral dresses and just all of this sort of so over the top nutty happiness <laughs> you yeah. know it's a it's this bubblegum uh, facade and uh you know and the joy that that you get from looking at stuff like that uh all all kind of rolled into one yeah it's funny i mean the title happiness is ironic for sure but at the same time it is it's definitely addressing the idea of happiness and what it is and and how people are able to be happy you know in spite of tragedy I don't think taking the title as purely ironic is totally helpful either. There is a serious discussion of what makes a happy life in this movie. And, you know, when the original couple, Francois and Therese, are, and, and the two kids are living their lives, you think, yeah, this, this is happiness. It's, it's convincing. She's a seamstress working from home, 
keeping an eye on the kids, and when she's busy sewing, then the neighbor keeps an eye on the kids, and he's some kind of carpenter, works in a shop, and um, after he'll uh, come home from the shop and uh, make love to his wife, and you know, everything's great. But then, uh, you know, Francois decides to... Um, I don't think he even sees it as jeopardizing his happiness. He just sees it as more happiness. In, yes. You know, sleeping with this other beautiful woman. That's the thing. I mean, I like happiness. The, the I think the title is absolutely ironic. But then the question of, of happiness, it, it's not so much is this happiness? It's whose happiness is this? There's a, definitely, I think, a very, very pessimistic and very feminist vein that runs through this film about the state of women in the 60s. And, you know, I think that the the person who's who gets happiness and experiences the most happiness here is definitely the husband. And there's definitely this question of if you're a man, <laughs> you know, you get to pile on your happiness indefinitely. You know, life life is your buffet. And, uh, you know, that, that he has this woman that he loves and she loves him and he loves his children. And gosh, why shouldn't he take another woman and, and love her? Because he loves her, as he says to her, in a different way. And, you know, this is, I get so much out of this, and, and I get so much out of her, and I love my wife, but, you know, why can't we all just love each other? You know, it's this sort of almost like um, late 60s free love style attitude, uh, you know, happening in 66. But Varda's not happy about that. Yeah, I mean, when when we're discussing strangers when we meet, I was trying to address this idea too where it's like the the 60s man who thinks that he can have it all you know you don't take a lover because you're unhappy with your wife you you take a lover because why not you know i see something i take it and uh infidelity is different in france than it is in america i'll just put it that way you know it's sort of institutionalized you see in movies all the time anyway it's the you know the wives are always uh you know, aware of their husband's lovers and they just don't want to know about it. And then, you know, if everything is compartmentalized. There's... But that doesn't mean that she's happy about it. Because that's what was interesting to me about this movie. I mean, like, there's definitely, this isn't a, like a, a finger of moral judgment at all. I don't think that Varda has any, any problems with the morals so much. There's definitely a celebration in this film of sensuality and desire and fashion and pop culture and, and it's kind of all of this fluffy <laughs> kind of stuff. But I, I think that there is this question of what does it really mean to have it all? And why do you need it all when you're already content? Which I think is kind of the main point of this film. And it, it made me wonder, too, because, you know, she, she was married to Jacques Demy. And they were married for a very long time uh, until his death. But he was secretly bisexual. And, you know, he died from AIDS, which is something that he never wanted to publicize at the time when he died. But it did make me wonder if maybe he had cheated on her with men in the past or maybe this was something that she knew was going to happen and that she was clearly okay with to stay married to him for a very long time. But perhaps it was also a warning for him not to fuck around. (laughs) (laughs) They did briefly split up in the 80s uh, and they didn't divorce, but it felt like it was kind of in some ways perhaps an early way for her to grapple with, you know, how it felt to share her husband's desire with other people. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> right. But there is also this idea that the knowledge is the painful part. I mean, everything is going great for Francois and Therese until Francois decides that he has to tell his wife about this affair. He wants her to know about his happiness. Right. And that's that's when everything falls apart. And that's when, when 
the tragedy happens. And I guess all I, I'm saying is there seems to be something particularly French about that. The knowledge is uh, more hurtful than the action of, uh, of infidelity. I kind of agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to know about anything like that. I love the matching sweaters at the end. <laughs> I love all the clothing in this movie. Uh, there is definitely, I mean, you know, the wife's a dressmaker. And then, um, you know, the first person she has is a woman who wants a dress directly out of Elle magazine. Uh, you know, and, and that everyone, all of the, the artwork and in and, and rooms was people doing collages of, of celebrities. I thought was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And there is clearly some sort of commentary here also about expectations of, of you know, of happiness and, and where you're sort of learning uh, how to do certain things and how to maybe how to have a marriage, you know, through celebrity. Although has there ever been a bedroom in a French new wave movie that hasn't been covered in pictures of movie stars? But that's such a, a, a like an integral part that that degree of sort of celebrity worship while undermining it or at least acknowledging it perhaps, but still believing it, still buying into it. Well, the real set piece in this movie is when uh, there's an outdoor dance and the uh, the camera is panning back and forth between uh, Francois dancing with Therese on one side of the tree and uh, Emily on the other side of the tree. And it's, I think there are, there are several touches in this movie. I think in a way this is her most straightforward narrative film where it's not showing you the rough edges, not showing you the filmmaking process so much but then it will stop i thought she was playing with a little bit showing edges by having all of the sex montages this never it's mm-hmm. never a straightforward sex scene it's always these sort of tableau montages of bodies <laughs> two torsos uh, intermingling kind of thing it, you know you just sort of get these snapshots of which i loved actually it was great and effective it like you know it, it comes across as as uh, sensual and it and it also is not exploitive you know it was pretty well done i thought that you know that there's nudity but not in a way that you feel like it's objectifying anybody it felt like these people are making love you know <laughs> this is what's happening right now <laughs> But I th- what I can say is that there's the least amount of documentary feeling to this movie of, of any of the features we watched. Well, they all feel like actors, for sure. But it's also, um, like Corinne Marchand in uh, Cleo from 5 to 7, the, the actors that she's selected are not particularly engaging performers, or else Varda has this idea of what she wants to accomplish in this film, And it feels like the actors in it are are sort of going through the motions and making the story happen. Like, I was not that sucked in by, you know, any of the drama that that was happening in this movie. It all felt very distanced and and analytical. Varda, in, in most of the 60s, is kind of switching between these two modes of, you know, very documentary style film where things just happen and uh, she captures it on film and, you know, sort of molds that footage into whatever she wants to mold it into. But what's happening on the screen is spontaneous. And she she puts that side by side, kind of like her in her first film, La Plancourt, with these very, you know, cold, analytical constructs. Um, and then... Uh, Pretty quickly after Le Bonheur, Agnès Varda made Les Créatures, The Creatures, in 1966. 
a, uh, a sci-fi film, and uh, you recently made a list of, uh, of French sci-fi films, and there there aren't a whole lot of them, but you know this sort of fits into you know same category as a uh, like a Je t'aime Je t'aime by Alain Rene and and Alphaville by Jean Luc Godard, where you know, these very low budget sci-fi films that are our new wave in, in in that they are done with you know very little budget there are no special effects it's just insertion of these sci-fi ideas into you know the everyday you know to greater or lesser success this this movie uh, the creatures was a big flop for varda and i think she wanted to forget it ever existed she actually made an, a museum installation with the print of this film called like the house of my failure or something and it's just this house that she made out out of film stock from this particular movie i actually think that it's a really interesting film it's not totally successful but it it definitely deserves a look and and it's been absolutely impossible to see for the longest time you know for no good reason that it should be seen and discussed and it's uh and it's entertaining actually it's just you know on, on a on a very basic level it's kind of a just fun, funny movie. I mean, it's definitely, it's no worse than Alphaville. <laughs> <laughs> and I like Alphaville too. I like this movie. I, you know, it's flawed for sure, but it's also kind of flawed by design. I mean, like this is a really surreal movie. It's, a, you know, a writer and his wife and they get into a road accident and then they take up in this, look like a lighthouse almost to where they're mm-hmm. living uh, in this island and, you know, as they're sort of recovering from their injuries where, you know, this is also Michelle Piccoli plays the writer and Catherine Deneuve is, is the wife. Milen and Edgar. Edgar Piccoli. Yeah, same name. Brother. <laughs> brother of Michelle. And uh, yeah, she's lost her voice and so she can't communicate and she never leaves the house. And then, you know, the, the all the villagers kind of think that he's a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> and... Hey. Then it kind of just goes off the rails from there. I mean, like he's writing a book and this other stuff starts to happen where he starts to think about what is happening in the lives of these villagers or this is actually what is happening. (laughs) So it's sort of not, you know, like because you think it's a fantasy sequence and then it has real life consequences. So it's it, it gets very muddled, which is the point. And it sort of all culminates in this other neighbor Ducasse was it mm-hmm. the the villain of the film Monsieur Ducasse and he just sort of he like sits up in a tower in his villa or mansion <laughs> <laughs> light other lighthouse and um he he has like this chessboard with what looks like holograms of the villagers it reminded me of actually of Star Wars chess <laughs> mm-hmm. And he moves these people around, and, and depending on his intention, if he has evil intentions, then they go nutty and they do something crazy and then they ruin their lives. Or if you're playing with good intentions, like uh, Edgar ends up playing with him, uh, then good things happen for them. Uh, yeah, and this mad scientist guy has these two s- sort of sinister little girls in the village plant these discs on people so that he can press a button and make them go crazy for a minute do something that's totally out of character for them and potentially ruin their lives. Hopefully his intention is to ruin their lives by this one, one minute outburst of anger or uncharacteristic behavior. And it plays out in the movie as if this fellow actually exists. And Michel Piccoli, Edgar goes and confronts this guy to try and stop him, to keep him from ruining the, the lives of the people in the village. And, uh, and yeah, and they have this chess match for the, for the destinies of, of all these characters, all these, all these various 
villagers. And it's hard not to see this as Varda's own discomfort with creating narratives for her actors to, to perform. It, it sort of fits in with my, uh, my issues with, with, with a couple of her previous features where I think Agnes Varda would rather have, just watch people you know, act spontaneously on screen and when she's, uh, when she's having them uh, you know, perform these, these actions that she's decided that they're going to perform, it's, uh, there's always a certain amount of discomfort. And I think she sees herself as this, uh, as this sort of mad scientist up in, in this tower who's, who's playing with people's lives and can make them do whatever he wants them to do. And you know, Michelle Piccoli is the, is the famous sci-fi writer who, who says, no, they have to, you have to create interesting drama. You have to make their lives mean something. You have to uh, create a narrative that's a reflection of the the reader and the the reader's wants and desires. And you know, it's it's kind of this battle for um, you know this godlike control that a creator that Varda has over her characters in a in a narrative with her sort of responsibility towards those characters. And uh, that's how I interpret this film. I like that, I think, better than... Well, I so I have two interpretations of this movie. And yours actually ties into my second... Well, it ties into both of them. Because I, I, when I was watching this, I kind of had the that first... My first initial reaction was that this was about how, you know, reality is a construct. <laughs> and that, you know, we're all basically playing by certain rules and just that, yeah, like this sort of discomfort with who we're meant to be or um, I don't basically all the things you just said. And then, uh, you know, and, and that, you know, this his writing is about as real as he makes it or, um, you know, uh, Deneuve's uh, muteness was as real as she makes it because she uh, it's in her mind. It wasn't a medical issue when she goes into labor. She's pregnant, by the way. And when she goes into labor, uh, suddenly she finds her voice again. But then I started to think. Maybe this is like Agnes Varda's eraser head. Because the last scene, the last shot of the film is a newborn baby crying. Mm -hmm. And then I was wondering, huh, maybe this whole thing is about anxiety of having children. (laughs) That, you know, it's also about how you have to tell your child how to perform. All of this kind of leads up to basically anxiety of putting your kid out there, you know, only to what you know be be pushed around like a chessboard figure or something i definitely saw that when when you know it ends with this newborn baby screaming that this idea of this you know this this child has its entire life ahead of it and what does fate have in store for this child and can it make its own destiny and and all all that sort of thing and it's like can we just let this baby be can we just let it do what it wants to do and you know not get involved in any of this dramatic business and you know this business of you know constructive narratives or you know this artistic world but i mean the whole other side of the story is catherine deneuve's muteness where i was not totally sure what varda was trying to do there exactly it was definitely some sort of you know feminist statement of some sort but at the same time you just have catherine deneuve as this you know, happy housewife who cooks for her husband, has a meal ready for him when he gets home, cooks his favorite meal for him, doesn't say a word, like, you know, the perfect wife. Like, is this supposed to be the masculine image of, of what a perfect wife should be? And I mean, and it's very clearly his fault that she's mute. She tells him to slow the car down. He said, no, it helps me think. And, and they crash. And it's very, like, I was very frustrated by his lack of taking responsibility for what was wrong with her. 
throughout the movie. Yeah, then the child turns into like uh, basically just a metaphor for creation and right. artistic creation and, and that, you know, this is more about maybe again even the pain that comes with the, the sort of ignorance of men that only follow <laughs> their, their <laughs> own goals and let everyone else sort of die in the dust behind them. Which is essentially what that uh, other guy is doing up in his tower playing chess. He's, he doesn't care about these people. He's just having fun. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. All of it at the end of the day, it's like in, in kind of the failure of the movie for me was that it doesn't, nothing adds up to much of anything in a way that just comes across as a little too pretentious. Like, I think that she threw out too much stuff and didn't really follow through with it. Granted, that could also be that I missed something like, I wouldn't call this a failure of a movie at all, but I, you know, what, what turned me off though, was that it just had a lot that felt a little too serious or just flat out pretentious. I just didn't really follow through on, on, you know, the, the images and, and the things that she was putting down. And they just, they sent, they felt more random than they felt like they had a true meaning. Um, you mean like him having conversations with a talking horse and a talking rabbit that was the best part of the whole thing <laughs> besides him beating children with a dead cat yeah i was into that i mean like yeah i don't know the sheet salesmen were pretty amusing too i didn't like those guys they were that you know it was very kafka-esque those those guys reminded me a lot of um the castle <laughs> Yeah, these two these sheet salesmen attack Edgar um, just so that he will end up ripping one of their sheets and have to pay for it. And then they keep following him. They follow him home, and then they're like, "Hey, we were drunk. Don't worry about it. Buy our shit." And he's like, "No, get the hell out of here." Well, we'll just leave him here and then put a dead cat on. <laughs> I think the real problem is that it was a narrative miscalculation because at a certain point you realize what's happening with all of these villagers doesn't matter because it's just they're subject to the whims of this guy in the tower. So once once this chess game starts to happen, you lose any kind of stake that you have in what's happening with the villagers. You know, like Ava Dahlbeck is, um, you know, the, the, the Bergman star. It was nice to see her in something besides a Bergman film. Is an innkeeper and she's having an affair with the, with the doctor and... Her sister is kind of the, the village slut and is meets this other, you know, handsome electrician. And and they're sort of um, the, the goal of the chess game is for for Edgar to sort of manage to to keep any of these couples in the village together um, without the mad scientist destroying their relationship with his anger discs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think that. That you were, you know, you're following the relationships of these villagers, you know, wondering what's going to happen. And then when you realize none of it matters, it's just, you know, they're the, the, these constructs of these artist figures who are, who are playing chess for their destinies. It, it sort of loses a whole lot of momentum at that point. Well, it, it also mixes this sort of this like this, the sci-fi chess thing is really sci-fi. You know, I, I, and then the rest of it is just not, you know, it's, it's weird, but it's not, it doesn't get to that level. And then at the point where you're at like sci-fi chess level, you you want to know more about that world. It just feels like, it felt like too many things happening at once for me. And it had, she maybe just stopped at, you know, weird writer too. Had they just been two weird people that couldn't connect to society and, and occasionally talk to horses and rabbits and like, that's fine. <laughs> 
You know, like I would have been totally okay with that. But then to add in that sci-fi level, but, and then, yeah, you're right. They, they bring it in too soon. And then there's a full hour left of the movie where you, you just sort of, you don't really care. And then they, and then he kills himself and he has like a sort of like a, a George uh, Sanders, like suicide note where he's like, I'm bored. I'm goodbye world. You know, like, <laughs> oh, okay. Like, great. Is that how he dies? Well, he, he doesn't fall out of the tower, but he leaves some suicide notes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But then you also don't know if any of this is happening because this also could be just the book that he's writing. Uh, okay. Weird movie worth checking out. Probably the first movie that has stumped Cinema 60. <laughs> Won't be the last, I'm sure. Um, so next, Varda went on to join up with a, with a whole bunch of new wave filmmakers to make a documentary on Vietnam. But uh, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, so, you know, Varda, I, I watched this Far From Vietnam, 1967. And, yeah, a lot of people were involved in this um, to the point, And they don't really call out who did what, even though some of them are very obvious. Um, but, yeah, you have, like, Jean-Luc Godard. You have William Klein, Lelouch. You have Chris Marker, uh, Elaine Rene. Yeah, you have a, a ton of people uh, basically putting together this sympathetic look at North Vietnamese uh, army during, uh, you know, the Vietnam War. So this is right in 67. And it's a great documentary. It's really interesting. Uh, some of it, I think, like Godard's bit in this made me laugh out loud, which it was 100% not what you were meant to do. But um, I, I told Bart, I was like, you know what? I think actually William Klein owns this documentary. I thought that his stuff was really fantastic and really interesting, but maybe not the best thing to discuss for the, the Agnes Varda episode. Well, you, you said that they lost artist footage and that's why she didn't end up having that much to do with the finished product well so what she it, it apparently got deleted like it got erased and i don't know she had come up with a fictional episode for this apparently and then it just didn't didn't make it um marker got rid of it i don't know so it's sort of interesting she does have a part in this where she narrates uh, a lot of documentary footage of what's happening in north vietnam the problem, though, is that, you know, there, there, you know, this is you, this isn't the day of cell phones and, and Google and the amount of footage that actually existed was was not that much. And they sent someone over who had a visa to get some footage for this. And uh, it's limited. So, you know, the a lot of this really is more about people in the West who are Westerners looking at North Vietnamese and trying to figure out you know, a way to sort of tell their story of their sympathy more so than it is shining any sort of light on what's happening because they didn't really have access to that. So Varda, you know, she talks actually, she's the only segment who talks about the French involvement in Vietnam, whereas most of the other ones are, are kind of about, you know, uh, look at look at America, you know, ruining the world, which isn't untrue with the Vietnam War. But I, I do honestly get a little side eye when you hear the French get all uppity about Vietnam and it's like, well, you guys started it. <laughs> yeah, but we finished it. Oh yeah, we did. We really screwed that one up. Well, we'll have to do our William Klein episode very soon so we can talk about his footage in there and, and discuss this movie and I'll actually watch it and be able to contribute something. As far as Varda's contribution, it, it doesn't, I, I mean, she, you know, it's there, it's good. It, it, this is also clearly ties into uh, 
all of this, the, the Cuba documentary where she is uh, very sympathetic to the communists. And then um, one that we're going to talk about uh, in a couple of minutes here, uh, her Black Panther documentary. So makes a lot of sense that she was involved in this and uh, has a very similar, you know, is reporting on a, a very, um, you know, optimistic view of North Vietnam and, and her sympathy for um, the, the communist uh, effort. But uh, before she made the Black Panther short, she made a, a brief little portrait of uh, her Greek uncle, Yanko, who she tracked down in Sausalito, California. And uh, so it seems like, we, you know, even as far as documentaries go, she sort of flip-flops between political documentary and th these portrait documentaries. And this one is definitely a portrait of a colorful uh, older gentleman. And... Uh, yeah, in the late 60s, Varda went out, she she and Jacques Demy actually went out to California to, to make some movies. He made Model Shop at the time, and she made a couple shorts and Lion's Love, which we're going to talk about in, uh, in a little bit. But uh, on, on the way, during the trip, she found out she had this distant uncle, uh, who actually turns out to be the the uncle of a cousin, but... Uh, you know, still, still Uncle Yanko, and he's he's living on a boat, and uh, he is a mixed media painter, and he's uh, so all the all the hippie kids in the area love him and like to hang out with him, and uh, it's just a you know entertaining little portrait with great colors. I loved Uncle Yanko's pink sweatshirt. <laughs> I loved everything about this. This was such a, a like a warm, sweet funny and a uh, beautiful portrait of uh yeah of her um, i think he's her first cousin actually but she calls him uncle because he's older he's much older than she was <laughs> and uh it's a great portrait not only of of yanko who is living his best life uh, as far as uh you know this is such a great portrait of of sausalito in its heyday uh you know and and of that sort of san francisco uh aesthetic and and type of of person and in California in the 60s. I mean, like, this is it. This guy lives on a boat. Uh, you know, whoever wants to come and go, comes and goes. He's very, uh, you know, touchy-feely and open and sweet. Uh, he's an artist. Uh, his artwork is awesome. I love his art so much. <laughs> it's a little bit on the primitive side for my taste, but it is... I do like the colors. Oh, it was it so looks, good. It looks great on 16 millimeter film anyway. The color... Yeah, all the colors. His, his houseboat was amazing, uh, you know... I love her little touches of just her own sweetness towards him uh, and, and sort of finding this kindred spirit, you know, is like genetics is crazy. <laughs> the fact they didn't know each other, I think, is fascinating because had you told me that he was actually, you know, a mentor to her or something, I would have been like, oh, yeah, obviously. But yeah. no, they didn't know each other. And, and she actually read about him, I think, in a Henry Miller book. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's right and then was like oh like varda huh any relation and, and realized oh yeah there is actually a director relation so uh it, it was great he just seemed like a really interesting colorful guy and uh that yeah they were these sort of kindred spirits and it's it's interesting and, and nice the most varda-esque moment of this documentary though is when she has to reconstruct um, meeting Uncle Yanko for the first time. Yes. And she, uh, and it's, it's showing her discomfort with, with these constructs on film again, where she clearly doesn't, like, she, she tried to recreate this, this first meeting between the two of them and either, you know, wasn't satisfied with how it turned out or just was very self-conscious about, about how artificial it was. So she shows it 
you know, she shows like six different takes of, of them pretending to meet for the first time. And awkwardly hugging. It, she seems very yeah. <laughs> uncomfortable. I mean, I guess that's, you know, when he's, uh, he's in the window and, and has the uh, red gelatin uh, in, in front of him and, and she'll ask questions and the kid opens the door and he answers and, you know, gives a brief answer and the kid shuts it again. That's all, it's all very playful. And it has, you know, there, there, there are multiple ways in which the, the documentary draws attention to the fact that it's a documentary and it's, you know, here's a person with a camera filming somebody. Varda can't ever really get away from the, the self-referential uh, nature of her films. It's this like you know, constant analysis of what she's doing and how she's accomplishing it. And uh, yeah, whereas with Godard, showing the, the raw edges of, of the filmmaking process seems very playful. Uh, with Varda, it seems like she's sort of hedging her bets a little bit, like, you know, just showing you how... Maybe not that. I mean, that's not being fair. I guess in a way, she's just showing how difficult it is to make a film and to present your ideas on film. It seems less playful and more sort of the, you know, the basis behind what she's doing with all of her films and just showing you how narratives are constructed. I feel like, I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> but for this particular movie, like, it didn't feel, that felt so secondary to the the sort of celebration of this guy mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, but I, there's also, she can't help herself. I don't know whether she's, you know, very, she's consciously doing it as a, uh, you know, as a signature on her work or if it's just, you know, it's, there, there is, it's, it feels like a real, like a self-consciousness. Her own discomfort. Maybe it's an apology for, for having had a pretentious movie before. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, then we move on to Black Panthers, which is very straightforward. And you would really have no idea that Agnes Varda made this film. This is this is just uh, I mean it's twenty minutes long. It is basically that she shows up in Oakland right when all of these protests are happening for um, Huey Newton having recently been arrested for uh, killing a cop. That was what he was accused of, even though there was no evidence. He he was in a car. A struggle ensued. Uh, another person was in the car, and there was no evidence that Huey specifically did anything. And yet he was he got arrested for it. Yeah, I mean, this was this was great. It was really um, she lets the Black Panthers talk for themselves, which is I think was really important in this in especially in the 60s, because there was so much misinformation about who the Black Panthers were and what they represented. You know, I think the narrative at the time really was that, you know, the Black Panthers were into killing white people. That that was sort of what white people heard about, you know, that this they, they were scary and, uh, you know, and violent. And then you, you know, you watch this documentary and like immediately it becomes very clear that really what's what's happening and, and not just because they're telling you that, that this is what they're standing for, but seeing how people are demonstrating and and also just knowing, you know, what black people were going through at the time. You know, you had a group of angry, disenfranchised people that were speaking about their love of guns and their desire to kill the pigs, uh, you know, at a time where the white people were still holding on to that dream of peace and love, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, what I didn't really 
really realize is this call to arms for the Black Panther really mostly had to do with the fact that the police are armed and the police, the white man's police had, you know, was never going to work to benefit black people at all and that black people need their own police force. Who is it? Is it Eldridge Cleaver that sort of talks about the demands of, of the Black Panthers and talks about how they want every black person released from prison and tried by a jury of peers and it is at least in 1968 when this documentary was made there you know the black panthers hadn't you know splintered off into various groups you know wanting this and wanting that and it all seemed very police focused the police are against us so we need to do something about it yeah and and i mean this was this is it like this is the dream of the black panthers for sure because yeah eventually you get the fbi meddling hardcore and and taking everyone <laughs> down i'm only laughing because it's just so horrible quite frankly uh there there was um you know the, the reason why they call themselves black panthers was because pan they thought of a panther as something that never attacks but always defends itself uh, and ferociously and yeah, the, the whole point of the Black Panther Party was to stand up to the cops who were unfairly actively arresting and killing black people, you know, which is, you know, yeah, ties right into to what's, you know, coming, rearing its head again right now. Nothing has changed. Yeah, which is sad. But then at the same time, I mean, it was kind of interesting to see that, oh, this dream actually, you know, was originated, not completely, but, you know, that that the Black Panthers, despite the fact that they, they ended up getting completely uh, destroyed by, by the government and the FBI later on, they uh, the dream still actually has, has lived on, uh, you know, and even when you had a lot of the, the male leaders got all kind of splintered off into a really weird kind of ego slash drug slash kind of screwed up issues like the vast majority of them if they weren't murdered by cops they were uh, had other issues that unfortunately you know really split the party the one thing that i feel like is a very agnes varda touch in this documentary is that she you know it's funny you hear the black panthers in this talking about like women we consider women equal and you know, they, they, they're, they seem very communist. They, they even say, you know, like, uh, we, we're against capitalism because the system's broken and, and you know, it's only for white people and, and we're, we embrace communism. We think that women are equal to men. They'll carry Mao's little red book on them. Yeah. But, you know, the, the reality is, of, is that, you know, the, there is a lot of male ego in, in the Black Panthers that unfortunately helped to destroy it. You don't see any of that, really, in this documentary. Definitely not. Varda, again, has no real opinion other than just showing you, uh, you know, what people are saying about themselves, which which is fine and, and good. Uh, you know, and I wouldn't say that this was any sort of definitive text on who the Black Panthers were, but um, she does focus on the women. And in this documentary, if, if anything else, like you can tell that black is beautiful. There is no way like everyone is beautiful in this documentary. They are so lovingly framed. I couldn't believe how young they all are. Huey Newton. Is oh, yeah. Like, so, such a baby. And then I loved there's an interview with Kathleen Cleaver is the only woman who, who gets to talk, unfortunately, on this. And um, she still is the show as, as the most articulate and passionate interviewee as, as far as I'm concerned. She gets the most to say. They have some other interviews with women. You know, who, who talk briefly. Oh, right, right. Yeah, but, for for real, there's some, some really quick things. But she's like a leader. Clearly, the, the filmmaker is interested in the women in the movement. But I think that, you know, for anybody making this film, there'd be a certain fascination with 
with militant women, you know, women who are soldiers in a political party, just to see them training with machine guns and, uh, you know, being treated just as like any other soldier. Nowadays, it's, you know... They, I think they were just rifles. <laughs> yeah, you're right. They're just rifles. <laughs> but I mean, women have been in, in, you know, the U.S. military for quite some time now, but in 1968 to see... Oh, yeah. You know, female soldiers is must have been pretty shocking yeah it's wild i mean you can definitely see what what drew her to come out and watch it all happen and she's there for when he uh gets convicted which ended up getting overturned a a couple years later i believe but you know there she was to to sort of capture the the fallout after uh all of these passionate protests uh in his honor it's also interesting to see how how many white people were there yeah (laughs) not not that many but like more than you think you know, it, was, it seemed very tied into the the hippie movement. Like all the white people there seemed like they would also be attending any uh, love-ins in Golden Gate Park too. They're, I mean, you sort of think of the Black Panthers as antithetical to the peace movement, but uh, you know, this documentary shows that it's you know at least at this moment in time, all the young people were were upset about the you know how how things were going and. Uh, they wanted to band together, you know, black and white. Or I mean, youth seemed to be what connected all of these people. Yeah, and they make the really clear distinction between institutions and people. They say they don't attack individuals; or they're after the system, which was neat. Mm-hmm. It was cool. And uh, I guess all of this kind of ties into the her last '60s film here, which was *Lion's Love*. feature that she made while she was in California. And it's a um, semi-improvised film about a woman and two men who uh, are living together. And And it is super California. (laughs) (laughs) This is like the most California, this is the most LA film I have seen in in ages with Viva, who was uh, Andy Warhol's model, and the two guys that did hair, Jim Ratto and Jerome Ragney. And then the filmmaker Shirley Clark, another female filmmaker, she sort of figures into it, <laughs> not as much. Well, she's kind of she's the stand-in for Varda in this yeah. movie, for sure. And in at certain points in the movie, there she literally, yeah, she's Shirley Clark is sitting in a chair, and then it it cuts to her again, and it's now Agnes Varda in that chair. And I mean, the, there, this is something where there's not really a plot, and yet at the same time there is. Because what was interesting about this, I kind of expected this to be 60s nonsense. <laughs> and in a lot of ways it is. I mean, like in the opening credits, they give the television equal billing to the people that are in the, the film. And you think that, that they're being silly. And then you're watching this movie and you're like, oh, no, the television figures into it pretty, pretty much uh, for a lot of it. But it's really there's this love triangle living. They're all actors. There's this sort of a, a plot about them trying to get work. And then there's a plot about Shirley Clark coming to make a movie. You get the sort of cut of all the producers and the studio heads talking about, oh, we don't want to pay for it. Ah, oh, what is this? Oh, uh, you know. Well, let me jump in and say you, you say a love triangle, but it's actually a menage a trois. 
Jim and Jerry are not vying for Viva's attentions. They all love each other and live live harmoniously in one house together. Yeah, it's sixty nine. And spend most of the time naked in their in their pool in the backyard and in bed. At some point in the movie, it's described as a documentary about actors pretending to be real people, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Which you kind of have to see the movie to understand that that really is kind of exactly what it is. It is mostly just these three actors. I mean, they all are actors of amateur status, I guess. If you've been in several Andy Warhol films, that doesn't necessarily make you any kind of professional actor, I suppose. Although I guess Jim and Jerry were uh, were on stage for years doing hair. A lot of it is just kind of actors' exercises. Their, Their interactions with each other seem, you know, like, skits that they're performing and it's good it's i was surprised at how entertaining it was as opposed to you know a lot of these warhol films that are basically let's turn a camera on and see what happens there's enough of a structure to this film like varda is definitely in control of what the audience is seeing and you know she's clearly taking the best stuff we're not supposed to see life as it's happening obviously but these are the three very engaging funny people and uh, I enjoyed watching them do, you know, whatever silly things they were doing, just, you know, one non sequitur after another. And, you know, at one point they uh, decide, I wonder if we could be parents. So they borrow three children and try and entertain them for an afternoon and just uh, <laughs> and it's drugging them. <laughs> <laughs> I love their apartment. They, they're living in this, like, amazing, perfect L.A. 60s apartment with a pool in the backyard and a big wall of windows and... They say, oh, everything's fake here, and they have all fake plants. (laughs) They have, like, a fake bird and and fake pillar, and they point out all the things that aren't real in the apartment, and it's it's really funny. It's cute. That's the subject of this film is, like, what's real, what's not, what's constructed, what isn't. Politicians, uh, Robert Kennedy in particular, all he is is an actor. You know, he's just another star on the screen for us to watch, and... When he's shot, there's a lot of footage of the Robert Kennedy assassination. Which apparently happened when they were shooting. Like, that wasn't, like, a planned thing so much as it just happened and it was on TV and they just went with it. But it really works. She really makes it work. It's just this whole idea of, like, we're watching this assassination on TV and is this real? Is this entertainment? Are these people that we're watching on the screen performing are they being themselves and they're all actors but they're performing as actors but they're also being themselves because they're in their lives they're you know very centered around performance and Shirley Clark is here playing Agnes Varda and sort of showing her Varda's attempts to get a film made in Hollywood and getting funding for it and an attempted suicide which is one of the best scenes in the movie Shirley Clark has just been told that she can't have final cut on her movie, basically, which is all the only demand that she had. She would make it for any amount of money, like as little or as much as they were willing to give her, as long as she had final cut. And they said no final cut. So, you know, she just comes home back to the apartment of these these three kids and uh, and she takes a bunch of sleeping pills and then, you know, an attempted suicide. But she, you know, before she can take the pills, she says, no, this is nothing I would ever do. Agnes, Agnes, I, this is, this is not me. I would never take these pills. And then, you know, Varda comes on to the She screen seems and, distraught. 
like surely she seems really upset she's like i wouldn't kill myself over a goddamn movie uh, you know like the only thing i care about is my daughter this is stupid she like gets up she's like you can't do this i'm not an actor and at first you think this is part of it but like it might it still might have been like i, I you know I, I almost like i can't tell quite frankly but then varda comes on and she you know you hear her off camera suddenly there's no one on screen and varda's like it's just we're making I'm trying to make a movie here, Shirley. I'm trying to make a movie. See how easy it is? Just do this. Just pop these buildings. Yeah, and she around. takes her shirt off, she here. puts it on, suddenly she's on Varda's on screen and she's yeah, taking these pills and she's like then she lays down and dies. And then Shirley says, Okay, I guess I can do it, okay. And then Varda gets up, Shirley takes her place. It was great. It was this really, you know, a really strange moment. But yeah, you're it completely it it you know, it all works together. All of these things come together as, as being a, a point weirdly. <laughs> I think, I mean, that's why I think this is the perfect Varda movie. Like I think she, she's got the right balance of documentary and constructed narrative and theoretical presentation of ideas. And she gets it all right in a surprisingly entertaining, watchable film. And I know that Probably there are not many people who might share this opinion. I don't. I don't think it's all that highly regarded, and it's definitely not considered by many as a pinnacle of her career. But I think that she finally seems comfortable in her own skin in, in this movie, in, in a way. Like she's she's finally been able to to balance all of these sort of things that have you know made her a little uncomfortable with filmmaking and combine them into this sort of analysis of what's real what's who are who are movie stars they watched lost horizon at one point and and viva is quoting ronald coleman's dialogue in it and the tv is you know one of the major is one of the major stars of this film and you're sort of watching this this classic hollywood film and seeing how different this is this movie from 30 years before is is just completely different than the film that you're watching on screen right now like it couldn't be more different but they're both shot in hollywood i just i i love this film i wanted it to go on and on the more i think about this movie the more i really liked it <laughs> like watching it i mean it's also yeah i don't know like i guess my i had some expectations of a, a vague plot there's a point to this movie, I would say. There's not much of a plot. But the thing that really got me was that I like I fell in love with Viva in this movie. Yeah, she's great. She was so funny. No she was so cool. She was like, I just totally, I loved her in this. She was just amazing. And I loved, there's a line where she says like, oh, you know, it's not as silly as the movie you're making, Agnes. You know, and, and, and kind of keeps, she's very aware. You think she's going to be this sort of vacant model type. And, and actually, you know, Jim and Jerry, kind of treat her that way in in some ways like I feel like they're going for the the sort of horny guy thing and and she never really gives into it she doesn't say no but she's never you know there's no stupid you know sex scenes there's a lot of nudity but there's nothing that uh ever really undercuts her power and she kind of just really owns this whole film and I and I really love the ending of this where she talks about you know Varda interviews all of the the three actors and and sort of well you know, what are your expectations for this movie and, and how do you feel about this movie? And Viva has this great line where she's like, I wanted to actually read lines and here I am again doing improv, but, uh, and I was sick of nudity and then here she is again naked. And she says, I was sick of being raped, uh, you know, as uh, on screen. And then she says, you know, all I want to do is just sit here and just breathe for a minute. And I just want everyone to deal with that. <laughs> 
much. And then Varda just lets her breathe on screen for a minute, and it's just glorious. It was just great. This is one of the more pleasant surprises I've had since we started doing this podcast. I went into it just thinking it was going to be improvised hippie nonsense, and it turned out to be... I'm not going to say there's not a frame wasted in this thing, but it's uh, everything seems to be there for a reason. This seems like uh, Varda's biggest success of the 60s. What, which of these movies would you say is was her most successful? I think Happiness, actually, but, but this was a close second for me. Did you catch that uh, Peter Bogdanovich cameo in this? Yeah, very brief, coming out of the movie memorabilia shop. What did you think about that play in the beginning of this, The Beard? It seemed intentionally terrible. It's not. That's that play. <laughs> you know the play? Have you seen it performed well? No. Because it definitely was not performed well in this movie. I have never seen it performed. But it was banned for being too explicit. Oh, yeah. I, I just thought that these watching these terrible actors on stage, it was kind of a preparing us for uh, the uh, improvised nonsense that was about to come. But really, it's Viva Jim and Jerry come off really well compared to these actors at the beginning. But then they do the play at the end, Viva and, I forget which one's Jim and which one's Jerry, but they, um, they, in an empty pool, they perform the play again. And they're not, they don't do a better job than the, the actors in the beginning <laughs> for a bunch of little, little kids who are passing a joint around. <laughs> Explain the function of the beard in this movie for me. I was asking you. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's, maybe that Varda just thought, Showing hair would be too on the nose because these two guys made hair, but she wanted to show something in the same vein, sort of uh, avant-garde, cutting-edge theater that uh, was getting people in trouble. Although I guess hair was more, it wasn't banned. Yeah, so that's uh, Agnes Varda in the 60s. How did these movies compared to your expectation. I know you hadn't seen any of her movies before jumping in for this podcast. I mean, it was I was pleasantly surprised by how funny all of them were. You know, they all had a, a sense of humor, whether or not it was laugh out loud funny. It was just that she has very clearly a mostly non-pretentious eye. <laughs> that a lot of this mm -hmm. was like, this actually tickled her fancy and she just liked it and, and went with it. And I think that has that, you know, that rawness that coming from a world that isn't about cinema and trying to just show you something that makes her happy, you know, or trying to just, you know, get a, across a point that she very clearly understands fully. You get that across in all of her films. There's, there's never a moment where she thinks like, we can't show a television in a movie because that's weird, you know, like, no, it's like, here's this is on TV. <laughs> like, let's let's watch TV for a little bit. Like there's multiple scenes in Lion's Love where you're just you're watching television with the characters in the movie. And, and it's great. It's brilliant. And, and it works, you know. So I, I love that she was really bucking all of these uh, expectations just uh, through following her own artistic eye. And, and that's that's wonderful. And that's the type of thing where. Uh, you know, I wish that we had more female filmmakers, especially in the 60s, to kind of give you more of that, to come from this different perspective and bring something to the table that wasn't, you know, what, what we all expect and, uh, you know, the, the sort of stamped uh, approved view and that we get typically in movies and still today. But I, I mean, I'm never that comfortable saying that, oh, yeah, clearly this is a female filmmaker because this topic is addressed or this is shown this way. I, I, I always feel like that's, you know, in, in, in a certain way, I'm sort of 
projecting that onto the film itself. Well, but I don't, I don't mean that. I just mean that, that she had a really unique and interesting voice. I mean, like that, that to me is what matters. I mean, I, I do think that no one was giving Viva a chance to say the things that she said in Lion's Love. I think that that's notable. And I think that that's what you get when you have two women in the same room that can look at each other and not think sex <laughs> or, you know, constantly think sex. And that's when I would then point to her being a, a female filmmaker. But I just think it has more to do with, you know, th- this is a this is a great voice that I'm glad was given a platform because there's so many voices that haven't been and, and could have been. But, oh, you know, they don't have a penis. <laughs> yeah. And plus, she's I mean, really, all of her films are experiments to one degree or another. She doesn't have anything in the 60s that is a straightforward narrative with the you know, beginning middle and end and characters with arcs and that sort of thing so you know she was going to be marginalized whether she was a male or a female i think godard got lucky because early on he sort of captured people's imagination with his playfulness and you know it wasn't long into his career before everybody realized oh yeah this guy is not making commercial films at all and you know he, he had to go a completely different direction because he wanted to keep making the movies he wanted to make. Um, and I think Varda early on was kind of riding the, that riding the wave, the, the nouvelle vague. And, uh, you know, with these semi-narrative films, like Cleo from five to seven resemble, you can say what the plot of that film is. Le Bonheur, you know, has a storyline. They're still very much experimental films, but people wanted that sort of, you know, avant-garde edge at the time. And, and it wasn't like, I think Le Bonheur was a big hit. I mean, it was controversial, I know, but I think that's, it meant that a lot of people were, were going to see it in, in France. And it definitely made its way overseas too. I agree with you that she was always just making the film that she wanted to make. I think that that's why the official years of the French New Wave are really pretty short, the, you know, 59 to 62 or 63, because this is when people were actually going to movies that were challenging and, you know, were not straightforward narratives. And a lot of these filmmakers like Godard and, and Varda just, you know, continued in their non-commercial vein and, you know, stayed fairly marginal, where people like Truffaut just, you know, got, was able to, to keep making, you know, he... He was always working in a more commercial vein, and, and uh, you know, Chevrolet was, uh, you know, was making these thrillers. I guess all I'm saying is Varda's success and failure in the 60s is uh, definitely had more to do with the types of films she was making than the fact that she was female. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think... I mean, you know, she went on then to make movies until she was 90, so certainly... Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that she had trouble funding, as, as most people do. And she was, I mean, it was really nice to see the, the resurgence for her in the last couple of years here, in her last couple of years, uh, and, and people really celebrating her as a filmmaker. And, you know, I do think it's it's unfair that she, you know, is dismissed, sort of weirdly gets dismissed as the grandmother of New Wave, as opposed to being considered on the, on the same, you know, all these movies coming out at the same time as Godard and, and et cetera. And, her movies are just as good, absolutely. And it's not that she's not heard of, but I kind of wish that she was brought up maybe first in the conversation as opposed to a couple names in. But Well, she's, I mean, Chris Marker is another figure from the time who her career probably resembles more than, than others. I mean, he was a documentary filmmaker, for one. 
I don't, I don't think he made any or very few narrative features. And they both love cats. Um, and, you know, he had a... La Jetée was his one film that people know about. And these less famous New Wave figures seem to all have the, you know, the one movie that, that people point to is like, oh yeah, and there's Cleo from 5 to 7, there was La Jetée, there was, uh, you know, Alan René had uh, Last Year at Marion Bad, and that was, a, and Hiroshima Mona Moore, and those were big hits at the time, but he continued in, in his making the same types of experimental films, and he became a more marginal figure too after a very early success. And But I think she proved herself. I mean, like looking at all the films that we watch, these are all great, you know, I, I really, if not surprisingly great. The other thing, too, is even if this stuff comes out, uh, whether or not people remember it is the other hurdle to get past. And I can't help but think that she gets dismissed as as grandmother just because she wasn't, you know, a model. (laughs) But anyhow, thank you, Agnes Varda, because you did a good job. And, I'm, you know, this I definitely want to now go on and, and watch way more of her films that I've been putting off. So Vagabond is great. Definitely check out Vagabond. That's the probably her her best known narrative feature outside of the 60s and it's it's a good one nice so until next week or three weeks from now (laughs) this was cinema 60 You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.